you're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook, Mountain View Church NC. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Mountain View, and it's great to have you all today. If you are new, a very special welcome to you. Um, We are extremely, uh, extremely honored that you chose to worship with us this morning. And uh, I hope everything that's said, sung, and done in this place ultimately glorifies Jesus. But I also pray that it encourages you today as well. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to uh, share a couple of things that didn't make it in the announcement video. Next Sunday at 6 p.m., we're going to have our annual Mountain View birthday celebration and uh, yearly congregational meeting. Now, I don't want you to think of this as a business meeting. I detest those things, okay? We're going to celebrate the things God's doing in our church. We're going to commission some new deacons. We're going to have the opportunity to pray over the Contreras as they leave us and go to Florida and then from there on to Guatemala. And then uh, we're going to share some birthday cake. What I'd ask you to do is bring finger foods for our celebration next week. And when you get here, you can just take them down to the fellowship hall and come on upstairs. We will have child care for that. So uh, if that is a need you have, don't let that keep you away. Secondly, how many of you saw the video on our Facebook page regarding the exit plan? All right, so some of you did. Uh, Well, over here to my left, your right, there is now an exit road off the property. Because we've grown so much, we had to try to come up with a way to help with traffic flow, especially on Sundays. So today, you're welcome to go out the exit road, kind of help us pack things down. But next week, just know that we're going to have an entirely new traffic pattern. You'll come in through the asphalt drive and you'll exit through the new exit way. The parking team will help you do that. We're going to have to park cars a little bit differently to make that happen. Don't worry. Um, There'll be folks here to guide you to do that. So thanks for your patience as we uh, put that into practice. Well, I can't help but uh, read the book of Habakkuk and really admire the man who wrote it. He saw the godless things going on around them, and those things broke his heart. He knew that God was the only answer, and he really wrestled with why God seemed to care less about those things than he did. He had prayed and prayed and prayed, and for the longest time, he got no response. And when God finally did tell him what he planned to do, 
about the things going on around them, he couldn't take it. It broke him. It forced him to reconsider everything he thought he knew about God and about what he believed God should do and then to receive from God a hard word about what God actually planned to do about all of the evil and injustice running rampant in his land. Habakkuk believed divine judgment would not have the final word. Why? Because he was confident of God's care. He knew that the God of Israel is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So in spite of the fact that he knew judgment was on the horizon, that the coming of the Babylonian forces was guaranteed, he actually reached back into Israel's history and he wrote a song for the people to sing, to remind them in the midst of the pain of exile that God had saved them before and God would eventually come through for them again. When was the last time you looked around? On the whole, we are not doing well as a culture. Our nation is in rough shape, and I am no prophet, which means I cannot say what is ahead for us. But I wonder what God might be saying to us through Habakkuk about precisely how to care and to pray for our community and our country right here and right now. You know, lament is not only an appropriate response to personal pain. It's also an appropriate response to the many, many ways that we have gone astray. Perhaps God intends to equip us with hearts like Habakkuk so that you and I can stand in the gap in this moment and mourn the evil and injustice in our land and plead with God to do again what he's done before. Do the things going on around us break our hearts like they broke the heart of Habakkuk? Do they compel us to cry out to God like Habakkuk did? Do they cause us to humble ourselves, to confess our own sin, and to ask God to intervene? Do they compel us to cry out for mercy and to pray with hopeful hearts because we know the character of God? May God ultimately give us hearts like Habakkuk during these days in which we find ourselves 
hearts so full of fervent hope that you and I are convinced that even if the worst happens, God can bring life out of death. He's done it before. And he can do it again. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 say this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shagianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Father, we uh, ask this morning that you'll just bless the very simple reading and hearing of your word. God, it would be enough today to simply hear you speak. And I pray that all of us would turn now and attend to your voice and would ask you for ears to hear. I do ask these things in the name of the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we think about this prayer of Habakkuk, I invite you to think with me about how we can turn this into a prayer of our own. The first thing I want you to see in the text is simply this. God, we know that you've done great things in the past. Now, Habakkuk had no doubt heard the stories of the mighty acts that God had performed on his people's behalf in times gone by. To be sure, he knows now because God has told him that judgment is coming. God's made it abundantly clear. But he also knows that God has a reputation for delivering his people from the mouth of the lion, so to speak. And he wants the faithful of his own day to remember this as they enter and endure the judgment of exile. So what does he do? After he offers this simple plea in verses 1 and 2, he writes them a song in verses 3 through 15. It's three verses. Each verse begins with something of a title heading that announces the theme of that verse, and the remaining words each flesh out the theme of that verse. Look at verses 3 through 8 for just a moment. Habakkuk says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. 
Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses or your chariot of salvation? Now notice that the first phrase of each one of the verses of this song does begin with a title of sorts and then comes that word selah, which essentially is an interlude word. Nobody knows exactly what it means, but it's a pause. And then we have the rest of the verses of each of, uh, each of the verses of this song. The first verse in verses three through eight essentially announces the fact that God has come for his people in times past. That's what verse three says. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. The second verse declares that in times past, God has fought on behalf of his people. That title verse is verse nine. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with waters. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now, Verse 3 of the song begins halfway through verse 13 with a theme verse that declares not only has God come for his people in times past, and not only has God fought on behalf of his people in times past, but God has also defeated the enemies of his people in times past. The second half of verse 13 says, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Together, all three stanzas of this song form a powerful collage of vibrant images that depict the God of Israel as this mighty creator warrior coming to and fighting for and defeating the enemies of his people in times past. All for the purpose, as the song says, of their salvation, of their deliverance. In this song, God marshals the forces of nature in order to rescue his people. In this song, God upends the plots and the plans of evildoers in order to rescue his people. In this song, God delivers his people from certain death and destruction. 
Thus, Habakkuk says in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the reports of you. In other words, God, you have a reputation. And your work, Lord, do I fear or do I reverence or stand in awe of. You see, this song is a song of remembrance intended to fuel the faith of the people of Judah in the present, in the face of an uncertain future in exile. Last Sunday, we talked about a future-fueled faith, a faith that draws strength in the present from the promised realities of judgment and salvation that are set in stone in God's cosmic calendar. This morning, we're reminded that looking back on God's faithfulness in the past is also faith-fueled. In fact, over and over again in the scriptures, the people of God are told to remember God's mighty acts, to commemorate them, and to celebrate them so as to then live in light of them. The truth of the matter is, when we forget God's faithfulness in the past, our faith falters in the present. When we forget God's faithfulness in the past, our faith falters in the present. Our faith leaks, friends, even in the best of times. And sometimes it leaks profusely when we are in pain or when we're facing an uncertain future like Habakkuk and the faithful remnant of Judah were. When we forget what God has done, we tend to lose sight of who God is. When we forget what God has done, we tend to forget what God still can do. If you and I are going to develop a more resilient faith, which is, if you'll remember what this kind of back half and third of Habakkuk is all about, if we're going to develop a more resilient faith that's actually able to remain robust and even bear fruit in the midst of drought and storm. You and I actually need to fertilize our faith through the intentional and deliberate discipline of remembrance. I say deliberate discipline because I'm not just talking about responding to the nostalgic memories that come to mind. I'm talking about following the command of the Lord to remember what God has done in the past. We're talking about recalling purposefully to our hearts 
and our minds what God has done for us, particularly in and through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, this song that Habakkuk penned, it isn't just a song for the ancient people of God. It's a song for us too. Did you know that God came for you in Jesus Christ? Did you know that the prince of heaven left the glory of heaven's throne and he became one of us? He descended into the muck and the mire that is our fallen world. And he took our sin upon himself. He, he came for us. Did you know, as the second verse of the song says, that in Christ, God took on our greatest enemies, Satan and sin and death. Did you know that it's through the cross of Christ where Christ experienced what at the time seemed like a defeat, that God was actually winning the victory? The third verse of the song reminds us that ultimately through Christ and through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, that God has defeated our foes. You know, the text says that God has saved his anointed one. That God has plucked his anointed one from the fire, so to speak. That's what God did for Jesus. God, God plucked the anointed one the Messiah, Christ Jesus from death. And because you and I are in Christ, we have already been raised to newness of life in him. Remember what we learned in Ephesians about how in Christ we are already seated in heavenly places. And we have the hope and the promise of eternal life with God. Every time. You and I share in the Lord's table together as we will do today. We remember these things. We take our place at the table of our king and through the bread and the cup, he reminds us that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that you and I might be made whole in him. When you and I come this morning... Remember that Christ came for you. When you come this morning, remember that Christ took on your greatest enemies. When you come this morning, remember that Christ defeated your greatest foes. Remember what we talked about last week. I mean, you're, you're going to get to experience it literally this morning because he drank the cup of God's wrath you get to drink the cup of God's blessing at the Father's table. There's a seat there for you if you've come to faith in Christ. And you'll never be turned away. If you and I hope to make 
that turn toward trust that we've been talking about. We not only need to, to look toward the future in anticipation of what God will do, we also need to turn toward the past and remember what God has done. In this way, the past actions of God and his future actions, they act like something of a stabilizing anchor on both ends. So that while you and I are in the midst of present storms, we have the ability to look forward and backward and say, God's got this because he had this and he will have this. Make sense? And that's actually whether the, the storms are personal, relational, national, or global. It doesn't matter. God has done great things in the past. Habakkuk knows it. And in light of the fact that Habakkuk knows it, Habakkuk then asks for three things in verse 2. He says, In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive what? Your work, God. In the midst of the years, make it known. Make your work known now as you did then. In wrath, remember mercy. All three of these requests relate directly to coming judgment and to the exile. Knowing that wrath is on the horizon, Habakkuk asks God to ultimately and finally come through for his people after God's judgment has done its work. Basically, he asks, God, do for your people in coming days what you've done for your people in days gone by. His requests ultimately could and actually should become our requests. They're fundamentally as relevant today as they were then. Notice that Habakkuk says, in the midst of the years, revive it. Revive what? Your work. Your work. Underline your work. Friends, we need God to intervene. Notice that Habakkuk is not interested in human solutions. He knows that there is no human solution to the uncertain future that his people are facing. They need God to intervene. Maybe you do too. On this path of lament that we've talked about walking, this is that puzzle piece that kind of reminds us to ask God for those things that we need. If we know that no human solutions are available, we need to cry out to God. And remember, not just on a personal level, but, but on a church level and a community level and a national level. 
We also need to ask God to awaken us to our actual need for him. Habakkuk writes, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, revive your work. You know, it's not very clear how many people in Habakkuk's day knew what was ahead of them. It is pretty clear that many believed Judah to be untouchable because of the temple and God's presence in Jerusalem. Many of the people were proud and presumptive And they probably didn't even realize how much they actually needed God. In fact, it's one of the reasons Jeremiah got in trouble. He was preaching judgment and the hired prophets of the king were preaching prosperity. Do we actually realize how much we need God? Do we really? Perhaps that is our first problem. Perhaps we would do well to pray for a true sense of our situation. Perhaps we would do well to ask God to wake us up from our slumber. You know, so much of the church is just comfortably numb, kind of riding along, drifting comfortably to the clickety-clack of the steel wheels on the steel tracks. We got no idea we're headed for a cliff. You know how I know we don't realize that? We aren't praying. We aren't. We also need God to breathe gospel life back into his church. You know, reading the first several verses of Habakkuk, if you were to go back to the beginning of chapter one, it's clear that the word of God was having no discernible impact on the people of his day. We might well say the same about our own day. Could it be that we need the Holy Spirit to reignite within our own hearts a sense of our own sinfulness and a sense of God's great mercy toward us in Christ? Remember the song that Habakkuk taught the people to sing was all about the great deeds of God's saving mercy toward his people. John Piper writes, when I pray for revival, I pray first for the most radical thing, the utter devotion and allegiance of your hearts to Christ that you would love him so deeply 
and long for him so passionately that his coming would be your great hope and, his, and death would be gain and life would be for Christ and his kingdom. We also need God to make his presence and his power evident among us. Notice what Habakkuk says. He says, he says, God, in the midst of the years, meaning the years to come when God's people will experience and endure exile, in the midst of those years, revive your saving and delivering work. In the midst of those lean years, make it known, make it evident. Let it be clear to all that you are present in power to save. No doubt Habakkuk believed God's presence and power could make a difference in the years ahead. And fundamentally, it's only God's presence and power that will make a difference in our own day. Are you and I praying for God to act in ways in our own moment? that make his intervention undeniable. Now, just a caveat, be careful what you pray for. God's presence is evident in salvation and judgment. It does. You know, the year was 1857, and the growth of New York City began to force the wealthy residents out of the downtown areas. As a result, many churches decided to move to more fruitful locations. In a state of decline, the North Dutch Reformed Church decided to stay and to reach the lost masses around them. In July of that year, they employed a 48-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear as a lay missionary. One day, Lanfear prayed, Lord, what will you have me do? He sensed God's leadership to begin a weekly prayer service at the noon hour. By the way, lay missionary, not a pastor. That means... A move of God can begin with who? Anybody. Anybody. Okay, I just want to make sure we're clear about that. <laughs> Anybody. He sensed God's leadership to begin a weekly prayer service at the noon hour for workers and business people to commune with God. He began on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1857 in the upper room of the church building in Manhattan. In response to his advertisement, only six people out of a population of one million showed up. The second week, 20 attended. And the third, 40. On October 10th, the New York stock market crashed. See? Be careful what you pray for. Often God uses devastation to evoke desperation. 
The stock market crashed, putting many stockbrokers and clerks out of work and shutting down businesses everywhere. 30,000 people in New York City lost their jobs. Many went into bankruptcy. The panic shattered any previous complacency. Are you listening? By late winter, people were willing, people were piling into what had become multiple daily noontime prayer meetings filling the Dutch Reformed Church, the Methodist Church of John Street, then Trinity Episcopal Church on Broadway at Wall Street in February and March. Every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled. Within six months, 10,000 people were gathering daily for prayer in numerous places throughout the city. And the lost were coming to Christ in amazing numbers, estimates as high as 10,000 a week in New York City alone. And it didn't stop there. Other major cities also developed prayer meetings. And though pastors often attended and lent their support, lay people provided the leadership. In Chicago, the Metropolitan Theater was filled every day with 2,000 people. In Louisville, Kentucky, several thousand crowded each morning into the Masonic Temple. And overflow meetings were held around the city. In Cleveland, the attendance was about 2,000 each day. And in St. Louis, all the churches were filled for months on end. What impressed observers and the press was that there was no fanaticism, no hysteria, no objectionable behavior, only an impulse to pray. One famous evangelist at the time commented, quote, the general impression seemed to be, and I love this, we have had instruction until we are hardened. It is now time for us to pray. Little preaching was done. As the people gathered, they were largely silent. There was a great overarching attitude of glorifying God. Ultimately, the awakening of 1857 and 1858 brought over one million converts into churches in America and revived many of the over four million members present before the prayer movement swept the land. Historian J. Edwin Orr describes the profound effects of the awakening this way. The influence of the awakening was felt everywhere in the nation. It first captured great cities, but it also spread through every town and village and country hamlet. It swamped schools and colleges. It affected all classes without respect to condition. It seemed to many that the fruits of Pentecost had been repeated a thousandfold. The number of conversions reported soon reached the total of 50,000 weekly. God has done great things in the past. Might he do them again? We should certainly ask. Habakkuk did. 
Brothers and sisters, the world doesn't need another slick, production-driven, program-driven church. The world needs a presence-saturated church. The world needs a church desperate for God to intervene in our lives and in the world. The world needs a church full of people awake to our need for God, a church full of gospel life and gospel joy and gospel hope and gospel energy and gospel power. A church who celebrates the good news of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. A church that sings about the good news and means it. A church living into the good news. A church full of people more interested in being filled with the presence and the power of God than anything. God's done great things in the past. We should certainly ask God to do them again. Habakkuk's final request at the end of uh, verse 2 is, in my opinion, one of the most poignant and personal requests in the whole Bible a tender plea that God would be kind even as he pours out judgment upon his people. Again, lest we forget, Habakkuk knew that God's judgment was coming at the hands of the Babylonians, but Habakkuk also knew the character of God. So, he asked for mercy in the midst of of wrath. Now that word mercy, it's a hyperlink that if you and I were to somehow be able to click it, where would it take us? Exodus 34, 6, where God reveals himself to Moses to be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. Habakkuk knew the heart of God. Habakkuk's plea should be our simple plea. Folks, have you read Romans 1? There there, there can't be any debate based on what Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is being poured out on our culture when? Now. Right now. But praise God, we're still here. Which means today is the day of salvation that this prayer should become our prayer. God, in wrath, remember 
mercy. We, we know your character. We know who you've revealed yourself to be. God, have mercy on us. We should, we should make this our humble plea based on the character of Christ talked about this in December when we were going through Exodus 34, 6. The dominant emotional characteristic that is mentioned more than any other in the Gospels regarding Jesus's internal life is what? Do you remember? Compassion. He was compassionate upon the disabled. He was compassionate upon the crowds. He was even compassionate toward those who walked away from him. We can ask God to have mercy on us. We can say, Christ, have mercy because of Jesus' character. And then, of course, we can ask for mercy based upon the cross. In fact, it is at the cross where God's justice and mercy met. On our behalf, where God demonstrated his willingness to actually absorb his own wrath against sin on our behalf so that he could then show us what? Mercy. Oh, part of the problem is we don't marvel over that reality anymore. That God himself took the penalty he imposed for our sin upon himself so that you and I, when we entrust ourselves to Christ, we might experience freedom we might experience fellowship with God and we might experience the promise of eternal life. Friends, I want a heart like Habakkuk. I want a heart that hurts, that breaks for the things going on in the lives of the people around me. But I also want a hopeful heart. A heart that says, God, you've done these things in the past. Do them again. I know who you are. Have mercy on us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather in this place this morning as a church family. God, what an incredible joy it is to lift our voices in praise. What an incredible joy it was for me simply to stand and hear the voices of your people wash over me. Thank you for ministering to me in that way this morning. And thank you for your word. God, I want to pray for all of us in this room that you would give us hearts shaped like the heart of Habakkuk. Hearts of remembrance and hearts of hope. Hearts of hope because we remember all the mighty things you've done for us. 
Lord, as we prepare now to come to your table, pray that every person in this room, in the stillness of these moments, would just consider where they stand with you. And for that one here who is willing to say, I just don't have a relationship with God, I pray that, I pray that they'll not come to this table, that they'll, but, they'll, but they'll ultimately take hold of Christ this morning. That they'll entrust themselves to you, that they'll leave that life of self behind and say, Lord, enough of me, I want you. It's as simple as that. in our midst as we commune with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is the final Sunday of the month, and we're going to share in the Lord's table this morning. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to come to this table, whether you're part of Mountain View Church or not. If you're a visitor, we excited to have you come. Here's how we do things here at Mountain View. We come to the center aisles and come around this way and go down the outside aisles. Um, You've got folks up here who will serve you the bread and they'll serve you the cup. Let's practice remembrance as we come this morning. As you come, remember. Jesus came for you. As you come, remember, through his death and his resurrection, he confronted and defeated all of your worst enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And because he drank the cup of God's wrath, you get to drink the cup of God's blessing, the cup of salvation. May these physical things we can touch and taste May they remind us of these things God has done for us. I invite you to come when you're